But we'll, we'll get in a second to uh, where we're going in the Bible. But um, by way of introduction, if, if you've read the Bible a little bit, or if you've been around Christianity for a while, you might have heard of a list of virtues that the Apostle Paul shares in the book of Galatians called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, they'll be on the screen behind me. Paul says that God's Spirit produces these virtues, these, uh, these good fruit in the life of um, people who trust in Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And my question for you this morning is, which of these virtues, the fruit of the Spirit, which do you think is the least sexy? Which, which for you has the least appeal? Which, if these were like wrapped up in presents on Christmas morning, which is the one you wouldn't want to unwrap? You wouldn't want to get. I mean, everyone wants more joy. Everyone wants more love. Everyone wants um, more, you know, more, more patience for the people around them. Gentleness, uh, maybe. I think a case can be made that the, the fruit that nobody wants to be born, the one we think is the least appealing, is self-control. So like if the fruit of the Spirit were to get together for a dinner party, I think that self-control, nobody thinks self-control would be the life of the party, right? Self-control would be kind of wearing all beige off to the side, making sure nobody has too much fun. It sounds so negative to us. It sounds like deprivation, rigidity, kind of giving up everything that really makes life worth living. It's strange that it would seem so unappealing to us because it's one of the great virtues of the Bible. I mean, the Apostle Paul sings its praises over and over. So we're, we're finishing Proverbs this morning, and then we're going to go uh, look at Paul's letter to Titus, to his friend Titus. And in Titus, Paul basically says to everybody, you need more self-control. He says, older men need self-control. Older women need to teach younger women to have self-control. Younger men, you guys really need self-control. Pastors need self-control. Everybody needs self-control, Paul says. It's huge for him. So why does it sound so... to us. I think the reason is because it doesn't sound free to us, and we want to be free more than we want almost anything else. We, We think the good life is the life with no restrictions. Nobody telling us what to do. Nobody telling us what we can't do. Free to do whatever we want. Free to be completely ourselves. And self control doesn't feel free. It feels restrictive. But this idea of self-control, of not doing everything you feel like, is all over the book of Proverbs. So Proverbs is a book of the Old Testament of the Bible, written primarily by King Solomon. And we've been studying it together for the last few months. And recently we've been looking at what Proverbs teaches about relationships. Relationships with your your neighbors and your friends, with your spouse, with your kids. And we're going to finish it off this morning by looking at the, the last relationship, what Proverbs says about your relationship to yourself, which for Paul, or not for Paul, for Proverbs is all about self-control. So just to let you know where we're going, I want to show you this morning how beautiful self-control is, how beautiful the life of self-control is. I want to I bring sexy back for self-control, okay? I ran that line by my wife before I said it this morning. I want you to be able to hold up self-control and compare it with what our culture calls freedom and see that freedom, so-called, doesn't hold a candle to the life of self-control that we have in Christ. It doesn't come close to its beauty and its satisfaction. So 
So we're going to look in Proverbs this morning, and we're going to see a picture of life without self-control, two cases where we really need self-control, and where we can get self-control. So what life is like without it, two areas where we need it, and where we can get it. But before we do, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are with us this morning and that you are with us completely. You're not just a little bit with us, but you are entirely with your people. You're here in your goodness. You're here in your love. You're here in your power. You're here in your holiness. You're here in your sovereignty. You are here for the good of those who love you. And so we pray, God, that you would, that you would do goodness to your people through your word this morning, that you'd help us to live the life of self-control that you intend for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, we're going to look at a picture of life without self-control. So this is Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. So what's the picture here? In, in Palestine at this time, almost all the cities were walled cities. They had walls around them. And the reason was because they were in constant danger of invasion. So they would have these massive walls with a few gates around it, and if an enemy came, kind of try to take the city, all they had to do was come inside, shut the doors, bar them, and they could wait out a siege for a long time. But if, if somehow the enemy was able to get inside over the walls or, you know, th- through a waterway or somehow get inside and then get those doors open from the inside, the enemy would flood in take the city and break down the walls so the city could never resist them again. So a city broken into and left without walls is a defenseless city. It's a defeated city. It's a city open to plunder by anyone passing by. It's essentially uninhabitable. And that's what it's like to not have self-control. Why? Well, there's a book that I've never read, but whose title I've benefited from immensely, which is okay, by the way. It's a book by Chris Lundegaard called The Enemy Within. The Enemy Within. And it's a book about sin. And sin is not a popular word, but it's an incredibly important idea. Sin is something broken inside of us, something uh, twisted, something that, that isn't part of the way God made us. It's a way we've been changed, perverted in the inside. And so when God made Adam and Eve in the beginning, they were without sin. They had a life of perfect joy, of perfect love, a life of perfect fellowship with God. But they failed to obey him, and humanity changed. We call it the fall. They, they were no longer what they had been. They had new desires that were bad for them. They had new desires that turned them against one another. They had sin in their hearts. It's a corruption. It's a desire for bad things or a desire for, too, for good things that's too great. They become too important to us. We have an enemy within. All of us do. Every human, every generation since the garden has this enemy within. And it tempts us to embellish our work accomplishments, to get a better job review, maybe get a better bonus. It tempts us to snicker at people we see that have had a harder hand in life than we. It it tempts us to go places on the internet we have no business being. It's this enemy we have inside of us. And without self-control, we're a city without walls. We're defenseless. We're ready to give in to any temptation that comes our way. 
and the stakes are high. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 28 tells us that in the pathway of righteousness is life. And in its pathway, there is no death. But Proverbs 14, verse 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The way we go in life, the, the, the decisions we make, the path we choose, is determined by our desires. And the way we go ends in life or death. And Solomon's not just saying, when he says death, he doesn't just mean there are ways to live that are so foolish that you might, you know, die early, um, although that's true. But what he means is there's a way to go in life that takes you closer to God, who is the source of all life. Or there's a way to go in life that takes you away. And what determines where you go is what controls you. If you're controlled by your sin or if you're controlled by God, whether you have self-control. Either you will control yourself or sin will control you. And what controls you is a matter of life and death. And this is why self-control is so important. And this is why self-control is so beautiful. It, it allows us to live the life we were made for. It allows us uh, to live the life that God wanted us to have from the beginning. Sin wants to kill us. It's, it's crouching at the door. There's this scene in the Bible. Um, it, it's Cain. So Cain is one of the children of Adam and Eve. Um, he's one of their sons. And there's a, there's a time when Cain is angry at his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. He's saying there's, there's a desire in your heart that wants, that wants to take over. It wants to rule you, but you must rule over it. And Cain doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't control his anger. In fact, he kills his brother and he's exiled for us. We, we have desires that are bad for us. And they're bad for the people around us. But self-control allows us to live defended. It allows us to not be ruled by what we desire. And that is true freedom. True freedom is not doing whatever you feel like. It's not, it's not being in, un, unhindered from doing what you want. It's being unhindered from walking the way that God wants for you. It's, it's being unhindered from walking in the way of wisdom. We have desires that are bad for us, and true freedom is not to have to obey them. It's to be able to go the way that God says is good. Self-control makes us free, but it's incredibly difficult. So listen to Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So go back Go back in your mind to this city under siege, right? But now you're looking at it from the outside, and you're trying to find a way to get into that city because if you can get in, if you can get the doors open, then the city is yours. So think of what a hero you would be if you were the one who made the plan that got inside or if you took your courage and your life in your hands and you somehow got in and got those doors open. They would sing songs in your praise. They would build statues to you. And Solomon says it's more impressive to rule your spirit than it is to take a city. He says that it's, it's more impressive to not get angry when you're being provoked than it is to win a great victory on the battlefield. You know, we should have statues to people that can hold their tongues. That's what he's saying. That is how beautiful self-control is. He's saying it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's precious, it's rare. And when you see it, when you have it, that's true greatness. 
to, to, to be able to rule your spirit. So maybe at this point you're convinced. You're saying, okay, self-control is important. Not great at that. Would love to know. What should I do? And we're going to get there. But some of us still don't see ourselves in this picture yet. We don't, we don't still see how this is us. And so we're going to look at two areas that Proverbs really focuses on that shows us our need for self-control. And the first is anger. We already saw this in 1632, that whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. But another place this shows up is in chapter 29, verse 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So do you, do you guys know what it means, what it feels like to give full vent to your spirit? I bet you do. <laughs> I, I know what it's like to give full vent to my, to my spirit. You, you have something that you, you, you want to say, but you know you shouldn't, and so you hold it in. And the pressure builds about right here, and your eyesight maybe gets a little blurry, and your face starts to heat up. You get a ringing in your ears, and before you know it, you just let loose, right? You just say everything you've been holding in. You say the word that you know is going to hurt. You defend yourself, even though you know they have a point. You, you criticize them sharply, which is maybe the right word at the wrong time, in the wrong way. You just let loose, and you know what follows, right? Proverbs 17, verse 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Here's the picture here, okay? I want you to imagine a dam. This, a dam with this huge pressure of water behind it, right? This, just the dam, the water just wants to break through, and you just make a little hole in that dam, right? It's just like letting out water. But what happens? That trickle of water becomes a flow, and it starts to erode everything around it, and pretty soon the whole dam just collapses, and the water comes through, and Solomon says, that's what the beginning of strife is like. You think you're just starting something small, but you get two people involved who are both giving full vent to their spirit, and that doesn't stay small for very long, right? So quit before the quarrel breaks out. We need self-control for our anger. I never thought I was an angry person until I had children. And then until I had uh, you know, uh, an infant who just would not stop crying, no, right, no matter what you do, until I had a two-year-old who figured out how to open the door to his room and then, you know, was so delighted that he did it ten times every night, until I had a three-year-old who was being potty trained and suddenly had, like, a series of five false alarms, you know, five minutes after he was supposed to be in bed. And I, I never, <laughs> I was never an angry person until that. But... And you, you, guys, you guys noticed that all of those examples had to do with bedtime? That's, that's a really important point because the reason we get angry is because we have unfulfilled desires that lead to unmet demands. Something that we want suddenly becomes something we feel like we are entitled to and everyone around us, is in, they ought to give it to us. And we get angry when they don't. So for me, for me, my anger flares when my children fail to serve my demand of 90 quiet minutes before bed. I don't want to struggle with a child to get him to sleep and then go to bed myself. I want my time. I want my peace. You know, I want my Netflix. I want, I want some quiet. And I, I punish my children when they don't meet my demand. So what is it for you? When does that anger start to burn? When do you feel that pressure in your chest? Is it when you 
you leave too late for a meeting and you get stuck in that traffic at the Kamana Bay roundabout and you just you just furious at every car, right? Or or is it when when for the tenth time in a day you think, I could be doing this this job, my boss I could be doing my boss's job so much better than she is? Or is it when your deeply held political beliefs are just totally dismissed by your parents? What what is it that causes that pressure? Do you see how much need we have for self-control? Self-control enables us to govern the desires that become demands, that become anger and quarrels. It enables us to hold back, to quit before the quarrel breaks out. Think of what a self-control, what a gift self-control is to your families. What a gift it is to my children. What a gift it is to your roommates. For you to not just break out when your demands aren't met, but to instead have a calm discussion, just Overlook the offense. Just give them the gift of peace in the home. And Proverbs has wisdom for us about how to gain self-control, but we're going to look at one more area that it focuses on to help us to see how much we need it and how beautiful it is. And that area is overindulgence. Overindulgence. So listen as I read chapter 23, verses 29 to 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I didn't feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Now, before we get into this, let me say that the Bible does not uniformly condemn drinking alcohol. Okay, Earlier in Proverbs, uh, Solomon talked about how those who are generous with what they have, those who, who give to the Lord their first fruits, it says that God will reward them that their vats will be bursting with wine. So wine is a good, it's a good thing. It's a gift. It's, that's a picture of abundance. Um, David says in Psalm 104, verse 15, that God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. There's a, there's, there's a good purpose behind alcohol taken in a responsible way. It's a gift we can give thanks for, we can enjoy from the Lord. But we all know there's a way to drink alcohol that's a problem. And that's what we see in this passage. This passage describes the life of someone without self-control when it comes to alcohol. And nothing about this sounds like fun, does it? Right? This is, verse 29, this is Saturday morning. This is the, the morning after a night out. And this person has woe and sorrow, wakes up regretful. They have conflict. They wake up in a fight. They don't remember starting. They have bruises. They don't remember getting. Their eyes are red. They're bloodshot. I mean, they wake up hungover, right? Why? No self-control. <laughs> I imagine he says, who, who has complaints? And I imagine that the complaint is probably about a headache. No self-control. But I'm sure, you know, this is K-Man, right? So nobody here knows what this is like. Nobody here has ever had this experience in verses 33 to 35 that you drink to the point that your eyes see strange things, right? No longer entirely reliable. You say things that you didn't even know were in there. You're kind of appalled to even hear it coming out of your mouth. There's this 
really hilarious picture of someone trying to sleep in the midst of the sea. He says that trying to sleep on top of a mass. So you're staying still, but you feel like the whole room is going back and forth. Nobody here, I'm sure, has ever had that experience. But it's not so funny because look at what happens. Look at this tragic end in verse 35. He says, when shall I awake? I must have another drink. He has problems in his life because he drinks, and so then he, he drinks to escape his problems. He just goes back to the thing that keeps punishing him. And I don't intend this sermon to exhaust the Bible's teaching on addiction. A lot goes into addiction. I don't want to minimize it by saying, oh, it's just a problem of self-control. Just work harder. Um, if you know that you have a problem, if you begin to realize you have a problem with alcohol, if this sounds too familiar, please don't leave without talking to me or Ryan or someone from our prayer team, your community group leader. We want to walk with you through that. But what I want you to see is that overindulgence is an area where we particularly need self-control. Because this isn't talking about someone who has a beer after work on Friday. It says, this is those who tarry long over wine. They have enough, they enjoy the gift, and they just keep going. They linger. They overindulge. And they could have saved themselves so much headache and heartache if they just observed verse 31. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. If you can't indulge in alcohol (laughs) responsibly, don't even look at it, right? Don't go where it's going to be because it it promises joy and life and fun. But he says that in the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. In the end, it's the way to death. But maybe alcohol isn't your weakness. Maybe that's, but that's not the only way we can overindulge, right? It's, it's not the only thing we can desire too much that, that tests our self-control. Food can be the same way. We can reach the point where we're satisfied, where we've enjoyed the good gift, and we just don't stop, right? I have, I have overshot that point by an embarrassing number of Oreos. I've, we, we almost can't even have it in the house anymore because um, don't even look at it. Because it's, it's trouble for me. Entertainment can be like this, right? You, you want to watch a show at the end of the day just to kind of shed some stress, relax, and then it's two shows. And then you just miss bedtime because you just, you just don't want to return to real life. You want to disappear. Mobile devices, right? Phones. Why do we feel like we have to check our email every time we have 30 seconds uncommitted to something else? It's a compulsion, Right? Some people can't stop. Crackberry. Do you remember Crackberry? So overindulgence isn't just about alcohol. The problem isn't in the substance, although we should be careful with things that are addictive. The problem is in our hearts. It's with our desires. So what are we desiring when we overindulge? We're seeking a satisfaction from those things that they were never meant to give. We're the only thing that can eternally satisfy us is God. We were made for God. And we seek satisfaction from drink and food and shows and these things that can never never deliver it. And then we we double down. We think maybe maybe one more, one more drink, one more donut, one more episode of the show, then I'm gonna feel better. And it just doesn't pay off because that can't be satisfied by things in this world. God intends to be our refuge and our comfort, and our companion. And a cookie is never going to do it. Don't you want that life of self-control, a life in which you can enjoy God's good gifts, receive them as from him, but not be controlled by them? 
a life in which you're so satisfied with God that you don't look at anything else to give you that satisfaction. Self-control is beautiful. So where can we get it? Where can we get it? So fourth point, fourth and last, where self-control comes from. And this is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. So Solomon is saying to his son, your life flows out of your heart. What you choose, what you do, what you say, all that flows out of your heart. Jesus, Jesus famously said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Nothing comes out here that wasn't already in here. And Solomon is making the same point. Your life flows from your heart. From it flow the springs of life. So if, if the spring is clean, if the heart is good, then the stream is good, right? The life is good. But if the, if the spring is polluted, the stream that flows from it is polluted as well. So we need to, Solomon says, we need to keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep is, it means guard. Set a guard over. It means watch closely. He says, keep it with all vigilance as a top priority. So here's what we need to watch. What is ruling my heart? What what desire is top dog right now? Is it, is it love for God? Is it fear of God? Am I being governed right now by God? We talked last week about how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that means is that God is the biggest thing in your life. God is big. He determines what you love and what you say and where you go. Is, is God ruling your heart or is it something else? Is it one of these desires we talked about? Either the desires, when we talked about anger, we talked about desires that become demands that break out in anger. Is that what we're being ruled by? Is that pressure building because there's something we feel like we ought to have and we're not getting it? Are we being ruled by a desire for a satisfaction that only God can deliver, but we're looking to lesser things for? What We need to watch our hearts when, when we start to kind of you know, feel drawn in a way that, that just doesn't feel like the way we should go. What is ruling our hearts? Is it a, a love for God or is it a desire to be respected, a desire to get just a minute of downtime, a desire to just feel better? So that's one part of guarding our hearts is watching what's ruling them. And another part is watching what we let into them. So is what we're reading and watching, is it strengthening our love for God? Is it strengthening our fear of God? Is it making God bigger to us or smaller? The magazines you read, the websites you frequent, the shows you watch, the commercials during the shows, is the way they portray reality helping you say no to anger, helping you say no to one more drink, helping you say no to one more show? Or is it making harder? Is it making it harder for you to exercise self-control because it's feeding the desires that want to take control. But there's an alternative, which is to put something into our hearts that does strengthen our love for God, and Solomon tells us what it is. So if you look at the verses that lead up to 423, if you begin in verse 20, he says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. So Solomon wants his son to guard his heart by putting Bible into it, 
by, by taking these words, this book, and he says, he says, keep it in front of your eyes. He says, do, do not let it escape from your sight. And he says, take these words and keep them in your heart. So he says the way you can guard your heart from things coming in from the outside that shouldn't be there is have something there first that's stronger. Have God's word, God's truth. Have a big view of God already in your heart and you're guarded from what comes in from the outside. So, these are the ways that he tells us to guard our hearts. And there's another gift that he's given us too, which is friends, right? Proverbs says that he who walks with the wise becomes wise. So, the company you keep, is it helping you exercise self-control? Are they going the way you're going? Or is time with them actually making it harder to exercise self-control? Harder to go in the beautiful way that God has laid out for us. We can grow in self-control by guarding our heart, but we need something even more than that because we've all tried that, haven't we? We've, we've tried to walk away from the bar, but we just end up right back in the same stool. We've put the cookies back in the pantry, and five minutes later, we're taking them back out. Right? We've resolved, today we're going to be kind, and then five minutes after the kids are awake, you're yelling again. Guarding our heart is a good start, but God offers something even better because this idea that our life flows from our heart is picked up in this beautiful passage in the New Testament. This is John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, we said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is calling out to those who thirst, those who have tried what the world offers and have found it not to satisfy. They've, they've tried alcohol and Oreos and one-night stands and rapid advancement at work, and nothing satisfies. And he says, if you thirst, come to me and drink. I can satisfy you in a way that nothing in the world can. If you come to me, if you believe in me, I will give you the Holy Spirit who will, who will give you a new heart, who will change your desires, who will make you new from the inside out, and he will utterly transform your life. And John says, almost as a side note, he says, he said this about the Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when he talks about Jesus being glorified, he's talking about the cross. Because all of us, we've talked about how we have this deep heart problem, how we're not what we should be. We've been twisted and we've been changed. We want bad things and we want good things too much. We, we blow up in anger. We have one too many. We need to be forgiven and we need to be changed. We need new hearts. And Jesus died so we can have what we need. Because Jesus lived the only life of perfect self-control in history. Jesus was tempted just as we are, but he never gave in. He never sinned. He was tempted not to go to the cross. He was tempted not to die. Why, why should I die for them? He was tempted, but he never gave in. He did go to the cross. He did achieve salvation for us. And on the cross, Jesus, who never gave in, he died in the place of us Because we have. We have given in. We have indulged. We've gone the way we shouldn't. And Jesus took our punishment so we could go free, be forgiven, and have the hearts that we need. 
when we trust in him that he loves us and gave himself for us, we, we are forgiven completely and forever, and God's spirit comes to remake our hearts, to give us new desires, to enable us to live this beautiful life of self-control. So it's good and right to guard our hearts, to watch what we let in, to watch what we let out, but it'll do no lasting good unless we have the new hearts that Jesus and only Jesus offers. So, if you don't know him, he has something amazing for you. If you don't know him, he offers not just a new heart, but a new life. If you don't know him, please talk to someone this morning. Talk to me, anyone you see up here, the people praying over here. Talk to the the person who invited you. If you don't know Jesus, you can trust him this morning and receive the new heart that he offers. And if you do know him, and you're aware this morning that there's a problem with self-control in your life, you can look to him right now for forgiveness and for renewal, and he can help you to go in the way that pleases him. We can live this beautiful life the Bible describes in which we're not mastered by our desires, but we have them under control. We're able to not get angry, not overindulge, because self-control allows us to be ruled by a life-giving God, not by our death-giving desires. And it comes by looking to Jesus alone to satisfy. So let's look to him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you that in every way we've fallen short, you have not. You never sinned. You never gave in. You lived the life we couldn't, and you died the death we deserved. And now you offer forgiveness and a new heart and self-control. And we want to live this beautiful life in which we're free to follow you. Nothing holds us back. In which we're not slaves to what we desire, but we're slaves to you and your love. And so please come. Please send your spirit. Please bear the fruit of self-control and make us a church that stands out because we're not slaves, because we live for you, because we fear you, and use us in this community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this This is the time in our service when we worship God by giving back to him a portion of what he's given to us so the greeters can come forward. Um, It's time for our offering. If you're visiting this morning, if if you're here for the first time, please let this plate pass you right by. This is for those who consider Sunrise to be their church home.